Aloha. This is Catherine Cruz. It is Tuesday, January 23rd. Mahalo for joining us here on The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. Today we hear what lawmakers thought about Governor Josh Green's State of the State speech, about that climate impact fee, and are lawmakers open to a hike in the hotel room tax, and more about those incentives to get displaced Maui welfare families into long-term housing. We follow up on the state's plans for hydrogen as part of its move to get into more green energy. A year ago, we were hopeful, competing for part of a $7 billion federal grant, but we didn't make the cut. And a piece of the pie, it's National Pie Day. We talked to a Maui pie shop about weathering the wildlife recovery uh, over the last five months. Plus, we hear about a new Hokulea documentary about Hawaiians relearning the language of the navigator. Tune to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This morning, we hear reaction to Governor Josh Green's State of the State Address. HPR reporter Ashley Mazuo joins us this morning. Now, Governor Green talked about a $25 fee for visitors. It sounds vaguely familiar to a fee he proposed last year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, very similar to, to what he proposed last year. Um, that's going to be HB 2406 or SB 3095. That's the $25 climate impact fee that would be imposed on visitors when they check into a hotel or short-term rental. Um, he estimated it would bring in about $68 million a year, and those funds would go towards things like fire mitigation, sea level, rise adaption, and you know other environmental conservation efforts. Um, as you said, people probably remember the measure last year, which called for a $50 fee, and at the time was called a visitor impact fee. Um, the ledge didn't pass it at the very, very end there. Um, so it's kind of interesting that this is a version that's a little bit scaled back and kind of rebranded. Um, during press availability with the House Majority Leaders yesterday, House Finance Committee Chair Kyle Yamashita told reporters, you know, he was supportive of that concept. We're going to just look at everything and we're going to decide how to go forward. But uh, I think in concept, we kind of are in agreement that there should be some uh, um, something that people pay into that are impacting us and it should come from people from outside the state. Yeah, so whether they call it a green fee or impact fee or climate fee, it's still a charge uh, for visitors. It, it's for when they stay in either hotels or uh, uh, vacation rentals. Right, yeah, both vacation rentals and um, and hotels. Um, that would apply to them. Um, and, you know, Green also said that he would be open to any other proposals that could accomplish the same thing even raising the transient accommodation tax. Um, House Speaker Scott Psyche told reporters that lawmakers would need to look into the issue deeper if they were going to you know, raise that TAT tax. So any increase in the TAT would have to be uh, completely justified. We, uh, a couple of years ago, we allowed the counties to tap into the TAT and assess a 3% charge. Um, so that you know, has gone into effect recently. Whenever we increase the t- proposed to increase the TAT, we really need to look carefully at the numbers and whether there will be impact on the visitor industry. 
you know, the current TAT rate right now is 10.25%. And counties, as he said, have been able to levy their own TAT tax on top of that. You know, for example, Honolulu was the last county to do so and it implemented a 3% TAT tax in 2021. And this all happened because also in 2021, the state actually stopped sharing portions of that state TAT tax with the counties, but gave them the option to be able to pass their own TAT tax. So that's where that came from. And that's why he's saying, you know, if we are going to raise it at the ta- at the state level, we would have to look at how that would impact you know, visitors coming here and, and the whole tourism industry. Yeah, because in some places, the hotel rooms are, the, the prices are already very high. Right, right. And and so uh, the governor did talk a lot about uh, housing yesterday and, and Maui's recovery. Yeah, he did. And, you know, the topic that, that Governor Green really hammered down on really was housing, and he called it his top priority. And, you know, with that at the forefront of his policy, um, initiatives included, you know, controlling short-term rentals, which is going to be a huge piece of that, especially those that are owned by people out of state. Um, He brought up his Maui interim housing plan, which he again threatened to put a moratorium on short-term rentals if they can't get 3,000 units by March 1st. He said they're about two-thirds of the way there, but they really, he really encouraged short-term rental owners to, you know, um, pitch in and and give their short-term rentals, um, which the state will will pay guarantee for um, two years, I believe, 18 Mm -hmm. months. Um, Yeah. And he made it clear to reporters that during press availability after his speech that, you know, getting control of short-term rentals was a huge priority for him. Can I be blunt? I'm going to really put a lot of pressure on the short-term rental market, especially for those who own it from other states, because I don't think it's appropriate anymore. I'm going to make it difficult on short-term rental owners under several different circumstances. One, if they continue to take too much housing. Two, tax policies should shift and increase taxes very significantly on short-term rentals uh, if they're owned by individuals that are never here. So. I don't want to be rude, but I do want people to realize that that market should be for our our local families. And yeah, later during that press availability, um, he went on to say that Hawaii will just not be the best place for to be in business with short term rentals anymore um, for people from the mainland running short term rentals here. Um, He said that if people were worried that, you know, a a moratorium on short term rentals wouldn't hold up in court, he uh, referred to um, what happened in Kauai in 2018 when there were massive flooding there, and he said that a moratorium there stood up. Um, the Lahaina Strong uh, Community Advocacy Group of Survivors on Maui, you know, they reiterated the need for housing, um, saying like in a statement that there are still many community members still living in hotels or experiencing housing issues that the fires have only exacerbated. And the group called on Green to institute a moratorium on short-term rentals now instead of building more temporary units to house those in need. And so uh, how does the governor plan to, uh, I guess, uh, do more to entice uh, these property owners to switch over from short-term to long-term. Yeah, one main thing that he highlighted in his speech was um, a legislative measure he's calling Hawaii's um, Housing Hawaii's Ohana Plan. Um, That's going to be HB 2416 or SB 3105. And that creates a tax amnesty program for any owner of a short-term rental that chooses to sell it to a local family or someone who will turn that home into a long-term rental um, for local residents for at least a two-year lease. Um, The state would wait 
waive any criminal prosecution and all fines, penalties, and interest that may have been assessed for taxes and gross income on that um, STR. And the capital gains from the sale of an STR would also be excluded from taxation as well. However, it says that it could not be rented or sold to an immediate family member to qualify. So you see here, he's really starting out with with kind of like the carrot approach, um, carrot and stick approach here with potentially threatening a moratorium on STRs, but also, you know, putting these types of legislation forward to um, incentivize uh, people who own STRs to, you know, possibly sell them or start renting them out long term. Yeah, I mean, he just wants to offer the enticements first before he comes down hard. And, you know, uh, I know the governor also talked about having more money because the uh, Council of Revenues um, uh, adjusted their forecast that we would have more. Um, What else did he say about that? Yeah, he he kind of couched it a little bit. Um, They haven't touched the rainy day fund, which has about $1.5 billion in it. And he said that he intends to continue to not touch that fund um, for for any of these extra measures because it's really good to have all of that money in the rainy day fund because it gives Hawaii's borrowing position a very good rating and keeps interest rates down there. Um, finance Chair uh, Yamashita said that you know the House will have to look at the measures closely to decide what the state can afford or if they need to, how much more revenue they would need to bring in um, to support more measures or appropriations. Um, Council revenues, you know, as you said, they readjusted their the economic projection from 1.3% growth to 1.4%. But um, Yamashita pointed out that that increase is actually up from a negative number. Um, but he was optimistic that, you know, that there there's more money available there than they actually thought. Yeah, I was surprised to see uh, the county mayors, uh, you know, up there right away so f- soon, uh, you know, after uh, the state of the state address asking, you know, here's what we need for our needs uh, on the Big Island and uh, Maui and here in Honolulu as well. Um, yeah, so... That obviously, you know, a sign that it's, uh, uh, you know, they're hitting the ground running. You know, yeah. they they want they want their share too. <laughs> yes, definitely, the counties definitely want their share. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Ashley. Thank you. We've been talking with HBR's Ashley Mazuo about reaction to some of the issues in the uh, governor's state of the state speech, setting up his priorities for the legislative session. Are you interested in working for one of Hawaii's most dynamic media organizations? HPR is looking to hire a full-time board operator with experience in digital media production and broadcasting. If you're a quick study, possess strong time management skills, have a dynamic on-air presence, and if you enjoy new and interesting workplace challenges, HPR wants to hear from you. Visit hawaiipublicradio.org jobs to learn more. Support for HPR comes from SMS Consulting, providing data-driven strategic planning and evaluation services to nonprofits, businesses, and government agencies in Hawaii. Learn more at smshawaii.com. HPR presents the return of our Mele Hawaii Performance Series. 
performing live at our Atherton studio in Honolulu, Kamaha'o Haumea Thronas, Nathan Aviao, the Makaha Sons, and Ledward Ka'apana. For tickets and more info, visit hprtickets.org, sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. Josh Green was hopeful about the future of hydrogen in his State of the State address last year. Hawaii had just applied for a piece of a $7 billion federal grant to develop hydrogen power, but the state failed to make the final cut. So where does it leave Hawaii's plans to develop a green hydrogen hub? We talked to Mark Lick, head of the state energy office, about where things stand. They were very apologetic about it and have been trying to make it up with us getting other grants, which we have. But, you know, still, we want to pursue hydrogen. So, you know, there's there's a lot left to do. Some people might have thought that we were pretty well positioned to, you know, head in this direction. That would have given us a big leg up. Yeah, I mean, you know, so the $7 billion, that was going to be split up among as many as seven or eight different groups from around the country. But it was really designed, frankly, around large multi-state efforts heavily industrialized, and really trying to drive down. It was largely influenced by the hydrogen earth shot, you know, this this effort to try to bring the price of hydrogen from $5 a kilogram all the way down to $1. So they really, really were trying to sort of smash through this price threshold. In Hawaii, because our costs are higher, we started out at $7. And so we were kind of at a disadvantage from sort of that overall challenge. And of course, we made ours green hydrogen, which is even a little bit more expensive. So we knew it was a tall order, but we did know that they liked how effective we have been on our energy transition. And they gave us a lot of positive feedback along the way. So yeah, it was was a, a bit disappointing. Well, so we lick our wounds and then regroup. I mean, do we know how to strengthen the weak areas? You know, I don't know if there's going to be another go around and we can reapply. But you mentioned that, you know, we may get some money sent our way. So what type of grants are we talking about? There's other grants, and I'd be happy to talk about some of the exciting things that we're doing with Hawaiian Electric and KIUC on sensors for essentially wildfire protection that's a $250 million grant that we just submitted a concept paper for. And there's others that have to do with climate issued by EPA. And then that's another in excess of $250 million grant. So there are really major things that we're in the hunt for. But in terms of hydrogen, there won't be another hydrogen hub proposal that big, like a $7 billion. But there are a number of like really large, meaty efforts that have to do with production, have to do with marketing of hydrogen. And we plan to be on the hunt in those. Plus, there's going to be some direct follow-up from those who won the hydrogen hub like Arches in California. That's a UC-led, University of California-led consortium. And they've already reached out to us about green hydrogen and about maybe doing some production here. So we're going to be taking a really hard look at if we can meaningfully collaborate with them. Well, that's good then, because then we still get a piece of that action. It's possible. It's entirely possible 
And clearly, they've reached out to us. We're seriously discussing. We have no idea where that will ultimately end up, but you know, we've been encouraged by that. And of course, DOE had recommended to those of us on the short list that those winners reach out to us because there were a lot of really good ideas. I mean, we have two projects that are moving forward anyway. You know, you might be aware of uh, Aloha Carbon. That's uh, an Oahu-based effort to develop clean hydrogen from construction waste and demolition waste and convert that to hydrogen and sustainable aviation fuel. So they're proceeding and trying to get funding, and we will try to support them with grants that we can find along the way. There's another very innovative young company, Yumei, out of Hawaii Island that was also looking at landfill gas, plastics, glass, you know, a variety of different things to make green concrete. And they got hydrogen as a byproduct that as well as uh, potable drinking water and a substance called biochar, which can help soil out. So they're proceeding as well in outside of Hilo. And we, again, will try to help them get to their next stage as well. You know, we have heard the mayor there on the Big Island, Mitch Roth, talk about his willingness to help innovate. And that island is positioned to to do some good things as well. Right, absolutely. And, and, you know, as Mitch Roth has said, Mayor Roth has talked about also their availability appropriately developed of geothermal can also help to provide cheaper feedstock because you have to get the hydrogen from somewhere. First of all, we have to, you know, use green energy to be able to convert or split water, you know, to essentially get the hydrogen. And that's actually something that Hawaii Island has a great competitive advantage. And recently, the governor just provided $5 million uh, to the energy office to work with the University of Hawaii on what we call a slim hole drilling effort. And that's to do the research to identify the best locations for where a developmental well might occur. And of course, we're going to concurrently do that by seeking community guidance on where would they find it most acceptable to do that. Yeah, I mean, you folks have been doing work, you know, with the Natural Energy Lab there uh, in Kona. And, you know, they're expanding and looking for just innovative projects just to kind of take us to the next step. Yeah, and, and in fact, we just completed, uh, and this was something, you know, I'm on leave from the University of Hawaii. I was at the Hawaii Natural Energy Institute, which also has always worked very closely with NELHA. And we developed, uh, using support from South Korea, actually, a microgrid there. And that photovoltaic and battery microgrid, you know, are exactly the kinds of things that we collaborate on. And obviously, if we're able to then go to the next level on geothermal as well as uh, hydrogen. Uh, Nelha also has a working hydrogen fueling facility. So that's in operation now. It's fueling hydrogen fuel cell shuttle buses. I know that with the recent power outages, people, you know, some are, some are lamenting the demise of the coal plant, you know, shutting that down as, you know, reliable energy. And, you know, obviously we have the green energy goals. We may fall short, I don't know, of reaching that if maybe we don't move into high gear. But I think over at the AES coal plant, um, I think there was some discussion about, you know, can they do hydrogen there in the future? The AES plant, you know, did have the downside of it being an extremely large facility. So it was 180 megawatts. And that meant that you need to have a 180 megawatt backup system, you know, uh, essentially a reserve. And 
what we did find is, you know, after that was shut down, you know, by replacing that with smaller units with smaller reserves. And we found this even recently. I think a lot of people don't understand that the rolling brownout could have been a lot worse if you actually had a major plant. It was actually fossil plants that shut down, which caused the problem. So it wasn't renewable energy. It was the fact that you had, you know, power, you had weather-related events. And then um, if, if it was a larger unit that went down and we didn't have adequate thermal reserves to pick that up, and obviously if it's at nighttime, you wouldn't expect solar to be able to fill that in, that's pretty well understood in modeling. And, you know, essentially what we have to do is make sure that we have ample fast start units that can operate. And we're able to do that a little bit better today. The one thing that actually helped during that was the battery system, the Coppola Energy system, which had this fast, fast start capability, as well as the reserves to be able to sort of keep us going for another four hours. And then, it, then once that sort of drained, essentially, that's when it became, you know, a, more of a potential brownout situation. But that subsided pretty quickly. So we definitely, that's a wake-up call to make sure that we continue to replace these power plants, uh, have adequate fast start adequacy, and then continue to make sure we make fast progress on a renewable so that we have you know, plenty of reserves there. Yeah, we, we need reliable renewables. And, right. you know, just this month, you know, we were reading stories about how the first two offshore wind farms over in the Atlantic started to produce electricity. Right. And we had one application, I think, before the Bureau of Oceans. Do we know where we're at with that? Yeah, so, you know, previously, for a lot of reasons, it didn't make progress. But we know that uh, the company Progression Energy has continued to make uh, Progression Wind has continued to make progress and uh, has been working very closely with the Department of Defense, which has to really be comfortable where they want to place uh, windmills because of all of our defense-related issues. And at some point, you know, I, I know that the next step would be a permitting process with the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. I did have the opportunity to talk to Elizabeth Klein, who's their director, summer, and I do plan on following up in the next couple of weeks uh, to make sure that as progression makes progress, that we come up with an appropriate transparent process to make sure that, you know, the federal agencies responsible for that are doing that in an open and transparent way. I know that BOEM really does wish to collaborate with us and make sure they do it the right way. So I expect a lot of collaboration there. And then we'll see where progression is. And at some point, I'm sure they're going to seek a permit to be able to build that. And I think it's an important discussion we should have. You know, as you know, Hawaiian Electric included 400 megawatts of offshore wind, I think by 2035, in their integrated grid plan. So it is part of their plans moving forward. And, you know, we need to follow the process and get permitted if that's going to happen. And frankly, if they were expecting it by 2035, it's going to take a good 10 years to go through a process here to actually get anything underway. We've been hearing from Mark Glick, head of the state's energy office. He was talking to us about the state of hydrogen power and offshore wind power in the islands.
is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okauai, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. Today, we're testing your knowledge of local sports trivia. We're spotlighting an island son who became a pioneer in the Japanese national sport of sumo. He was the first non-Japanese wrestler ever to win a professional tournament there. This Maui native was born in 1944, graduated from Baldwin High School, and he moved to Japan when he was just 19 years old to join the Takasako Sumo Stable as a new recruit. He trained hard in his early years, and four years after he started, he was promoted promoted to Makuuchi, the sports top division. He had an unusually long 20-year career, retiring after an injury when he was 39 years old. He set several records, including one for longevity, competing in nearly 1,500 consecutive bouts. After he retired, he became a trainer to young athletes in Japan, and he is well-recognized in the sport. For the Backyard Quiz this morning, we're looking for his birth name. Bonus points if you know his professional sumo name. Call 808-941-3689 or toll-free 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right wins a reusable HBR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing parents and children experiencing homelessness with opportunities to secure housing, including Family Promise of Hawaii. NairitHawaii.com. On the next Fresh Air, we speak with Time correspondent Simon Schuster, who spent months embedded with Volodymyr Zelensky's team in Kyiv as the Russian invasion of Ukraine unfolded. Schuster was born in Moscow and immigrated to the United States as a child. He's covered the fighting dating back to the Russian invasion of Crimea in 2014. His new book is The Showman. Join us. Fresh Air, beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. If you're a fan of buttery, flaky crusts filled with apple, pumpkin, or chocolate, or other sweet or savory fillings, then today is your day because it is National Pie Day. Many Maui residents will mark the occasion with a trip to Leota's Kitchen and Pie Shop in Oluwalu. The restaurant reopened last month after it was sh forced to shut down in August because of the wildfires in nearby Lahaina. So how was the business impacted by the fire, and why did the owners decide to open up a pie shop? 
The Yoda's general manager, Kylie Okazaki, gave the Conversations Russell Subiono the answers recently while trying to manage the lunch rush. When the restaurant was named, they purposely included pie shop in the name, right? It very easily could have just been Leota's or Leota's Kitchen. It could have been Leota's Kitchen and Cake Shop. What was it about offering pies that the owners wanted to make sure to get that point across in the name of the restaurant? So the, the main point of our restaurant, I would say, is modeled after like grandma's cooking. So we wanted that homey feeling of when you walk into grandma's house, you know, it's, you would have fresh baked goods and fresh bread and fresh pies. So that was the main reason. And that's what we kind of wanted to highlight was our dessert. We do have really good food, but also a lot of our pie recipes are modeled off of like local favorites. So that was the meaning behind the pie situation. Did any of the owners or did the, I know the chef at the time, Sheldon Simeon, did any of them have a particular affinity for pie as opposed to, you know, cake or, or other desserts? Um, I don't think so. I think at the time when we did open, I don't think we had a lot of pie shops on Maui. I know we have a few of them now on the other side of the island, but nothing really here on the west side. So I couldn't speak for Sheldon if he liked pie or not, but I know I would see him in here (laughs) when I first started eating pie. So I'm assuming he does. And maybe, I don't know, maybe a few years back, he would come in and get pies for his family. So I'm assuming he loved our pies too when he first started this restaurant. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't love pie, right? I mean, when I think of a lot of restaurants, especially a lot of local restaurants, a term that they tend to use more is this term locally sourced. How close do your pies get to being locally sourced? We try to get everything local here. And that's one of the highlights of our pies is that we try to get local ingredients as much as possible. We do have a pie that's called Oluwalu Lime, and it's our version of key lime pie. But the reason behind that is because we get our limes local from the area. So we do seasonal pies. We try to keep stuff that are in season. We did have a strawberry pie that we do during summer. We do like a mango pie. So we have just one pie that we kind of change out throughout the season in what's local in the area and that we can get our hands on. But yeah, everything that we try to do here, especially with our pies, we try to be as local as possible. Especially during mango season, I bet those mango pies are super fresh, uh, super tasty. Yeah. I didn't realize that Oluwalu was known for limes. Did that also come from Chef Simeon? I believe it was another recipe brought by another chef. What are some of your most popular pies? Our top seller, I would say, is banana cream, and that's my favorite. Our chocolate macadamia nut also is super popular, and then I would say our Oluwalu lime. They're all really good, honestly. It depends what mood you're in, honestly. (laughs) And it's not just the sweet pies, too. You do offer savory pies as well, right? Correct, yeah. So we do have a chicken pot pie. We had a turkey pot pie and a meat and potatoes pot pie. But since our closure, we kind of opened back up with a limited menu. So right now, those items aren't on our menu, but we are planning on bringing them back. Hopefully soon. Okay, okay. And you mentioned the closure. Your restaurant is in Oluwalu, which is right next to Lahaina. I know you reopened last month after closing because your restaurant was impacted by the fire. Not the building that you're in, but another building related to the functioning of your restaurant. Can you share how Leota's was impacted by the fire? 
So we do have a culinary center. I'm not sure if you're aware. We are part of the Old Lahaina Luau, and we also have Star Noodles. So we're all the same company. So we had a culinary center up in Lahaina that got compromised during a fire. It didn't burn down, but a section of it did. So that kind of held things up with us reopening here at Leota's. We had to kind of figure out where we're going to put our bakers. Our kitchen here was just only so small. So that was a challenge for us, figuring out how we're going to bake our breads and our pies in-house. But also back here at Leota's, there's just not a lot of room and storage. So we actually make our pies at Leota's other than our bake shop. But we are hoping to open up our bake shop again in Lahaina. So that's another construction and hopefully um, we can provide the community with more flavors and options for pies. As far as like our bread right now, we didn't have any room to break any bread here at Leota's. So we did find a locally sourced company out in Kihei that supplies our bread for us for now. I've had the opportunity to talk to a few people from Lahaina who were impacted by the fire and how their recovery process has been going for them. I haven't had the chance to talk to a lot of businesses. How is your business's recovery going? Are you talking about like the tourism industry? Yeah. Yeah, we are pretty busy, I would say. I'm very, very fortunate. But we do have a lot of local customers, too, that visit us on the regular. So as far as business, it is a little slower, I would say, because of tourism, but we are still pretty busy. The line is out the door here, and we're just very fortunate for that. Is the line out the door there right now? When I went out there, it was, yes. Yeah. And that was it's right about like our lunch peak time, so <laughs> this is the time when we're pretty busy. A little tip for anybody that wants to come to Leota's and just get pie, I would recommend between like 3 to 5. That's when it kind of slows down, and... You can kind of go in and out and just grab your pie and leave. But right now, it is like our lunch rush. (laughs) For people out there who want to help Maui folks and Maui businesses as the recovery process goes on, from your perspective as a business, you know, what's the best way that people can help? I think just going in and supporting local businesses, especially on the west side. A lot of our employees are mainly from the west side, so they're all just super excited to be back to work and kind of feel some sense of normalcy we're super fortunate for everybody that has shown support to us these past couple months but yeah do you have a pie special this month it's national pie day we do not unfortunately (laughs) i just talked to our chef yesterday and asked hey you know if we're gonna do anything but right now we're a little in a bind with time and trying to find some back here in our kitchen so we don't but we do usually play like a little fun game i know it's national pie day but there's also the other pie day that's like 3.14 in march right so usually on social media we'll like post a little fun game so guests can go ahead and check that out kylie thanks so much for your time today it was a lot of fun talking to you about pie thank you That was Kylie Okazaki with Leota's Kitchen and Pie Shop. She was talking with HPR's Russell Subiono about how her restaurant is recovering after the Lahaina wildfire. If you're looking to pick up a pie from Leota's today to celebrate National Pie Day, Okazaki says the best time to come to avoid the rush is between 3 and 5.
NPR presents Tommy Morrison live at the Atherton studio. Morrison is principal bassoonist for the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra. For tickets and more info, visit hprtickets.org, sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. The market for certified organic products is growing. That certified thing, though, not always so easy. They're using organic practices, you know. There are just some places where it's hard to get certifiers. <laughs> I'm Kai Rizdal. The process behind getting yourself one of those green and white labels next time on Marketplace. Beginning this evening at 6. time to ring in the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. Earlier, we remembered Hawaii's first international sumo star. He was born on Maui and sought his fortune in Japan, where he became a champion and a mentor to the sumo wrestlers from Hawaii who followed in his wake. In 1972, he became the first foreigner to win a major tournament, the Emperor's Cup. After his win, a telegram from then-President Nixon was read in the sumo area, the first time English had ever been officially spoken there. He retired after a 20-year career that made him into one of Japan's most popular athletes, and he became a Japanese citizen so he could open his own sumo stable. His stable recruited younger wrestlers from Hawaii, several of whom went on to successful careers in what had been a sport for Japanese only. He retired in 1984, but the name of Jesse Kuhalua, also known as Takamiyama Daigoro, is well remembered by followers of the sport. But we had no winners today. But that's our quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. The new documentary, Hokulea, Finding the Language of the Navigator, tells the story of how Hawaiians reacquired the skills to navigate the ocean on long voyages. It focuses on a conversation between master navigator Nainua Thompson and cultural anthropologist Wade Davis. It also pays homage to Maupiailuk, the Micronesian wayfinder who taught his navigation skills to Thompson and others in the 1970s because it had been lost. The documentary was directed by Emmy-winning Native Hawaiian filmmaker Tai Sanga. He sat down with the conversations Russell Subiano in our studios. What gave you the idea to do the film? In 2022, I've been collaborating with, you know, my producers, Anbola Chelli and, and Heather Junior. We've been making a few documentaries for Hukulea. Mm-hmm. We're following the latest voyage out to Tahiti. So we did some short videos with them. And then, you know, we had an opportunity to do a longer format documentary. And they pitched an idea with, you know, Naino being available and reconnecting with Wade Davis, who he had met a decades back, you know, to kind of reconnect and, and, and see where their journey is. And it was like, that's kind of exciting because, you know, Naino is almost, you know, like he's, it's like 40 years of him being able to do, you know, celestial navigation. And it's, 
it's evolved and changed since the beginning. So uh, reflecting on the past and also looking towards what's what's the potential future here. There have been several documentaries about Hokulea that have come out in the last few years. What makes your documentary unique? Yeah, yeah, we actually f- do highlight this current sale, the you know the Moana Nui voyage right now. But also because of like the like I mentioned that you know we're keeping on almost fifty years of Hokulea's right. existence. So just Naino being able to kind of reflect on that and like you know in the documentary he talks about it. He's like his time is coming. He's ready to kind of step back and let the next generation lead. I know he said that many times in the past, but like this time it's feeling like we're getting closer towards that. And so, like, you know, Mao used to talk about, like, if you want to get navigators, send me your children because you're too old. And so when you think about that and you think about Nainoa doing celestial navigation for 40 years, like how much has he, he grown and what kind of knowledge has, has he's gathered. And, and with all his mentors that have guided him, he was able to kind of, like, hit like big touch points in his career yeah. as, a, as a navigator and some of the fears that he faced. Mm. So that was really inspiring because you don't really get to see him talk about, I mean, he does talk about all of the fears quite often, but we're able to kind of document it in this film, specifically his first time sailing as a navigator. Knowing that Hawaiians had lost the part of their culture where they're able to navigate the oceans prior to the launch of Hokulea. Do you get the sense that Nainua feels, you know, a little bit of pressure to make sure that his knowledge passes on to the next generation? Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, that's that's been the objective for uh, Polynesian Voyaging Society and, you know, the Ohana Va'a that everyone's been kind of, you know, Nainua is just one of the many navigators that Mao passed on that knowledge to. And then it's trickled down into the communities, you know, on each island. And it's very important for us to to continue to celebrate and to nurture that, yeah. that next generations. For Nainoa, I mean, the one thing that we got to explore in this film, because we're just talking about the technical stuff about it, right? But there's something deeper when you're talking about sailing out at sea, something deeper than, than all of this knowledge that goes on. It's very much like a way talks about it, like a musician. He's like, the music plays the musician, not the musician plays the music. It's the, there's a spiritual side to it, another side that that you can't really explain. But if you're there and you're present and you're listening to the ocean and the waves and everything that's going on in nature, something spiritual is happening. Either your yeah. kapuna is guiding you and, and stuff like that. So Nainoa was able to share some moments of that. And those are things that you know you really can't teach. That's something that you just have to be on the va'a and learn and be present. So... With all these current sales coming up, you know, there's wonderful opportunities for the next generation to experience that. In your film, Master Navigator Nainoa Thompson says, you have to know the language of the ocean or you die. We were searching for the language of the navigator. How were those originally involved with Hokulea? How were they able to find those languages, the language of the ocean and of the navigator? It took, and like how I said, Mao mentioned, like, you know, send your children because you're too old. Yeah. And so it took many years for him, for Nainoa folks to, and I'm still very, I, I, I am in, in no way knowledgeable to explain any of this because there's so much um, complexities to it. But he had many mentors and, and educators throughout his career, reaching from Aotearoa to, you know, to be able to, to sail within the Southern Hemispheres, you know, the folks at Bishop Museum, allowing him to study the stars there and just being able to just apply a lot of that knowledge 
that Ma was able to share with Nainoa and then kind of adapting to it because adapting to our hemisphere as well, you know, adapting to our waves. And one major thing about, you know, like the language of the navigator, it's like a lot of it is about being present and watching change happen in the environment. So in order to know where you're going, you have to kind of find the placement you are in on your voyage and then see how everything is changing around you and that will guide you of what your position is so you can make the decision to move forward next. And so we thought that, you know, and specifically for Nino, it was like it's important to get that information out there specific and with, with this upcoming sale of Moana and Alkeo because as global warming is happening, yeah. those changes are drastically happening. They're able to see that these navigators, these folks out there on this ocean have been seeing these changes happen rapidly. So many times it's scary to, to know like if that's what where we're going how things are going to shape out so the mission of Mwananuiakea became very very clear for him yeah wow i hadn't even thought about how climate change was going to affect being able to navigate the ocean and you've mentioned mao a couple of times for those listening who aren't familiar with mao the folks that built the hokulea he was the person that they found to help them regain the knowledge of navigating the ocean, right? Can you just talk a little bit about, yeah. about Mao? Yeah, Mao, you know, is very special. And we definitely, in the documentary, have a huge section to highlight him because, you know, we couldn't have done it. The Hawaiians, we would have failed um, that Tahiti cell if he wasn't there. So he, you know, Ben Finney, Herb Connie, you know, a lot of them, you know, back then they reached out to a number of navigators that were out in the Pacific. And thankfully, he was actually here on Oahu right. when they were trying to find a, a navigator. And so, you know, he agreed to help sail down to Tahiti. And then, you know, after that, that second sail that, that failed, we realized that, you know, like, Namao needed to help share that knowledge of navigation to Nainoa guys. And that's kind of none of this could have happened without him and he's like he's a big part of that revitalization of our culture and identity but also like he is just one of many navigators from his community in Micronesia too so we you know we kind of stand on their shoulders and we're grateful for all of that and we couldn't have done it without any of them and much of your film is an oral history of how Hawaiians were taught the language of the ocean and the language of the navigator. And what pops out to me is how it seems to be kind of like this serendipitous series of key people meeting other key people who have this key piece of knowledge. In fact, you kind of mentioned that, you know, Mao was the one that, that taught the Hawaiian navigators and he just happened to be on Oahu, right? So what kind of gave me chicken skin was just seeing how there just happened to be all these dots that just kind of connected that worked out. As you were making the film, what were your thoughts when you started seeing all these dots start to connect? <laughs> That's funny and beautiful that you mentioned all of that. Yeah, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm, I've been making movies for the past decades or, or so. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that I do in, in documentaries, it's, it's, for me, it's very spiritual. The stories, you know, I have a rough idea of where we're going to go in regards to the story and the narrative, but it speaks to you at certain moments, you know, certain things kind of unravel, especially when we're doing with this some, something so deep it, with historical. So there's, you know, there's stories hidden in other areas that you kind of, you never knew about, and then sometimes they just appear. That's almost relating very much to what Nino was talking about during his first sale. And, you know, when they hit the doldrums, you know, he's like, you prepare, you prepare, you prepare. But sometimes there's like another level of 
I don't know if it's your kupuna or whatever is happening, but someone else shows, shines a light on, on specific stories or moments. So you're just, you're prepared enough to get into the right place and then the rest of the, the world or a cool happens, you know. And that usually, when that moments happen, and that's when I know we're doing a good thing because it feels like we're on the right path. And so, yeah. like, just being, for me as a filmmaker, you know, and we're just observers, you know, so just being present to be aware of all of those things and, and cognizant of those moments, so, yeah. What I think is some of the most impactful things that the Hokulea Voyages are doing is inspiring other indigenous cultures to revive their relationship with the ocean or with water and pointing out to the world as a whole, you know, just how important stewardship of the ocean is. Can you talk about how Hokulea is able to do that? Yeah, I mean, some of these communities are way more advanced than we are. You know, some of them are deeper. You know, they've they've nurtured their relationship with their the environment. They've never had the outside pressures of of governments and and other things, other other larger entities. So, like the folks in Alaska, you know, like that's where we get a lot of our the spruce logs came from there. You know. And so with Hokule uh, having this larger platform, and, and I know that was one of the angles that we saw when we w- decided to do this documentary with you know Anne and Heather was that our job is to help amplify the rest of the community within the Pacific, within the, the world, and our, our indigenous communities, because you know they're the ones listening to the environment. They're the ones present in their areas. And we can't go in there and tell them what to do because they're the guardians of that area. So in order to help, tackle climate change we need to be able to amplify all of these voices because even though they all exist in pockets we all kind of it's there's like a domino effect and we have to and it eventually it's going to touch everyone so with Hokulea having this platform and with the sale coming up being able to visit some of these places and maybe allow the the communities to speak and share their voices and and share what the amazing things that they're already doing as well as you know amplifying what's been going on and what they've been recognizing that's been been threatening their their livelihood it's only the right steps we need to take as we move forward to try to tackle climate change. I know that you have some screenings coming up of your film. Yeah, no. So we have a screening tomorrow, Tuesday, January 23rd at Kaiva Kilo up at Kamehameha Schools. It'll be at 6.30 to 8.30. The ensemble will be there to perform a few numbers, as well as Nainoa. Nainoa will be there along with me to, for the Q&A afterwards. So it'll be a wonderful evening. And then we're hoping to replicate that on each island. You know, we're trying to weave in a lot of the ohanava'a. Like our job is to help the communities that we visit for them to kind of do more outreach, to get some some people there, you know, just making it a fun event for all of us to kind of share knowledge and get together. Tai Sanga, thank you so much for your time, man. Really appreciate you coming to the studio. Yeah, no, thank you so much, Russell. Hopefully you can do this again. Yeah. And that was filmmaker Tai Sanga talking with HBR's Russell Subiano about his new documentary, Hokulea, Finding the Language of the Navigator. Uh, he was in our studios recently. And you can catch a screening of the film tonight on the Kamehameha School's Kapalama campus. We'll have a link to more information on the conversation page of our website after the show. But we're going to leave you with the trailer. I was just kind of hanging around. I mean, I didn't do well in school. I didn't like school. My school was on the ocean as a kid. I was safe there. The skills of the navigator. You know, people have to remember that it's all based on dead reckoning. And dead reckoning means you only know where you are by remembering how you got there. (laughs) 
ukulele is not something quaint and colorful. It's not just some folkloric thing. It represents the reclaiming of a stolen legacy. Science and culture was at the genesis of building ukulele. It was that merging. Every mentor knows that the student is as important as the teacher in the lineage of knowledge. for you to navigate, you need to understand the interrelationship of nature of everything. If we're going to be able to find the inventors and the innovators to shift climate change, you're going to have to understand how the systems work. Now it's really, what are you going to protect? From our voyaging family, it's the oceans. We are searching for the language of the navigator. does it for the conversation. Tomorrow we talk about traffic safety on the Longview. Why so many fatalities? What can we do about it? What do you think? Call our Talkback line 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also find the conversation as a podcast on our website or at your favorite podcast store. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. <laughs>